Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. We are one church that meets in various locations across Greater Manchester. For more information about who we are and where we meet, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Our series is called To the Ends of the Earth, and we've been looking at the early church and how lessons from those believers can encourage us, they can help us grow, and then give confidence to us for the work of the gospel in our everyday lives today and in this city today. So it's been a couple of months, let's recap. In Acts 1-8, to we witness the unfolding creation of the early church. So the Holy Spirit is working amongst the believers The book um, actually begins with Jesus' final instructions to his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And true to his word, the Holy Spirit emerges on the day of Pentecost, descending upon them, empowering them to boldly proclaim the gospel in languages that they previously didn't know, to witness miracles that they previously hadn't seen, and many thousands are converted in Jerusalem. Peter then emerges as a prominent figure, And he's preaching repentance and salvation through Jesus Christ. He's performing miracles that are kind of proving the work of the gospel. And they're facing opposition and persecution from the religious authorities. During that time, the believers are coming under increasing pressure. And this is happening all while they grow in number and great things are happening. And one of the great persecutors of the early church is Saul of Tarsus. He's gone around executing Christians, dragging them into courts, and he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. He has this incredible transformation where he goes from Saul and takes up the new name Paul, one of the apostles. It marks a significant turning point in the story of the church because he becomes instrumental in spreading the gospel beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And then we looked at Paul's journey So his journey took him across various cities, across modern-day Turkey and Greece, and he faces acceptance and hostility in that time. Um, He is preaching and miracles, and the work of the Holy Spirit is bringing many to Jesus, but that is leading to opposition of a number of others who are seeking to put an end to the work that he's doing. And in the midst of those trials and tribulations, there are also internal disputes There are disputes over circumcision, over the cultural differences between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. And there's been a big council, the Jerusalem Council, to address those issues. They've decided actually that salvation by grace is the only way we can find faith, and you don't have to follow those old Jewish customs. And we've seen the Holy Spirit at work, we've seen him guiding, empowering, sustaining the early church. And now the stage is set for where we are today. Paul has reached Ephesus, where the principle, we're going to see some principles today of true teaching, true power. We're going to see what true response to the gospel is. And yeah, that's what we're going to look at. So we're going to be in Acts 18, um, 18, all the way through to Acts 19, 41. Um, All the passages I'm going to use are going to come up on the screen. But if you do have the Bible in front of you, that is brilliant because we're not going to read the entire text. Um, but instead we're going to see how specific parts of these passages can reveal some truth for us today. So let's start with the idea of what true teaching is, what it means to be truly taught. Um, There's a man called Apollos who has reached Ephesus before Paul, and verses 24 and 27 talk about this in chapter 19, uh, in chapter 18, sorry. 
Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So Apollos has, uh, sorry, let me read a bit more. When Apollos wanted to go to Actia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. I think Apollos sounds very impressive here. He's come out of nowhere in the scriptures, and he's a brilliant public speaker. He knows the Bible. He can explain what it means. He's passionate about sharing it. And he's arrived in this new city, and his preaching is drawing crowds. It's being listened to. But something is missing, despite all the skills, all the knowledge that he has. The section of text talks about this phrase, only knowing the baptism of John suggesting that maybe he'd had a water baptism but hadn't actually experienced a baptism in the Holy Spirit. He'd understood the idea of being repentant but not the idea of what true life in Christ meant. As I was thinking about this story the other day, I, was, I remembered a story I read earlier in the week about a skyscraper in New York. This skyscraper has stood empty for, I think, about eight years and it's been empty and unfinished since it was built. It was meant to be, it was meant to be stunning um, apartments were going to cost $30 million at the top of this apartment building in one of the nicest cities in the world, or, well, not so nice if some people have their way, but some people like it. Um, and now it lies empty, and they nicknamed it the Leaning Tower of New York. What went wrong was that the foundations weren't correct. The beautiful plans that they had had, when actually put into action, didn't line up. And so this tower leans ever so slightly. This picture makes it look like it leans a lot more than it does. I think in actuality, it leans about three inches. Um, but that has an effect, right? The foundations weren't there. And what Priscilla and Aquila are pointing out to Apollos is that he's missing those foundations too. I don't know about you, but if I was speaking publicly to many people and gathering a crowd, I think it would take a lot of humility to hear someone correct that to hear someone say, actually, you're not getting this right. And Priscilla and Quilla, they have to be very strong, I think, here to point out this gap in teaching. So there's, there's humility from two sides. One, one, to put yourself out there and say, actually, I don't know everything, and I don't understand it, and I want to learn more. But also a boldness to go and point that out in someone who's actually doing, in many ways, a very good job. So Priscilla and Aquila, they approach Apollos um, with kindness, and you have this incredible time where they teach him, and then something incredible happens where his pride doesn't get in the way. He embraces it and grows in his understanding of the gospel. It doesn't explicitly say it in this text, but what we see next is clearly a work of the Holy Spirit. So something has changed in his ministry. He goes to Achia, and many are encouraged to him. He was a great help to those who by grace had believed. And Priscilla and Aquila, these are individuals who understood the importance of guiding others to the truth. They could have gone, isn't it great that someone is speaking about the things we want them to speak about and gathering a crowd of people who haven't previously heard that message. Let him do his thing. It's not quite there. Maybe we can tidy up the edges afterwards. But instead, they approached someone boldly and said, well, you've got more to learn. 
And I think that's a lesson for us today as a church, right? That we can gather together as friends, as people who are on the same journey, the same mission, and speak boldly to each other and encourage each other and actually open ourselves up to hearing that from others. There's real value in being kind of convicted of the importance of teaching and being taught. And I think we have a responsibility to do that, to share with each other, to learn from each other, and to get better. Um, let's use another little analogy. Um, I'm not into gardening or houseplants, not like um, the Bioses um, or my wife, Abby, but she absolutely loves having them around. But the problem we had for years and years and years is we'd get a new houseplant and it would die very, very quickly. And it would make Abby sad and it would make me think the whole thing was rather pointless. But we'd get another plant and it would die. But a couple of years ago, we were given a cutting from Abby's sister's um, Monstera plant. You can see what the cutting has become. I should have really used a cutting that died and then kind of taken a better, you know, after photo. And after a few months, after we got this cutting, it too had begun to die. And I thought it was done for. But unlike Abby's previous looking after plant mistake, she'd actually learned and developed, right? She'd asked her friends. I know she talked to Hillary a couple of times recently about looking after some of her succulent-type plants. Um, I feel weird telling this story with Abby not here. She's not very well today. She was fine with me telling you this story. Um, but actually, she'd looked on the internet. She'd used an app that taught her the perfect place to put it, how much light it needed, all of that kind of stuff. And over time, that plant began to thrive. It's now bigger than that and takes up most of our living room. Um, but it's alive and it's healthy and it's happy. It's a bit of a, you know, a light story, but just like Apollos and Priscilla and Quilla, there has to be an acceptance that you don't know how to do something, that you're not knowing of everything in order to be willing to learn. And we have to be able to approach our faith like that with humility and openness that willingness to learn, to grow, and be corrected when we're getting stuff wrong. I can safely say, and maybe you'll be, feel attacked by this, that individually none of us have the answers. None of us have the answers. If you do think you have the answers, let's have a chat later. I would love to hear them. But together, as a room, as a group, right, we have a lot of answers about faith. We have a lot of knowledge and skill and experience and connection to the Spirit that we can actually approach a lot of topics together and share that load and look after each other. And I think that's important. It's important to be intentional about seeking out friends and mentors and being friends and mentors to each other. That's how we go deeper into true teaching, just as we see in the early church. They shared life together. They shared the word together. They shared worship together. They did it together. And that is, I think, the heart of where we learn and where we get our true teaching, to use that word. And then I want us to think about what true power is. Um, when I was reading Tom's notes, I quite liked the idea that there was a point called true power. He, liked, he prepares them, and it took me a minute not to make it about superheroes and thinking about invisibility being a really cool true power. Um, but that isn't what we're referring to. I think we see what true power looks like in verses 1 to 6 in chapter 19. It says, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you, believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not heard, even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? 
John's baptism, they replied, very similar to Apollos. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul put his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Paul has rocked up in the city of Ephesus, and immediately he's encountered some disciples. Immediately he's encountered some people who are seeking after the Lord. I love that. He seems to attract them uh, very quickly. I wish that all of our lives and experiences had people who were seeking And like Apollos, this group of people are sincere. But when Paul engages with them, he sees the same void in their understanding. They might understand scriptures, but they're missing the Holy Spirit. They don't have the fullness of understanding, the freedom and the power that comes with the Holy Spirit. And I think this is quite a fascinating point in the story, because Paul also sees this incredible opportunity for growth and transformation. He knows that it isn't head knowledge that means someone is a follower of Jesus, but a heart that is surrendered to the Holy Spirit. He explains that the baptism in water that they've had, the baptism of John, was that of repentance, but there's more to faith. You actually have to know the person of Jesus. You have to encounter his Holy Spirit. And once he's done that very short explanation, Paul lays hands on them. He prays for them, and immediately the Holy Spirit is upon them. There's an extraordinary transformation happening there, right on the streets of Ephesus among these disciples. And they're immediately given a new power. They're experiencing some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. There's a different language of praise that breaks out amongst them. A level of connection to God is revealing itself to them. And actually, if you think about the context, it's revealing it to everyone around them. Something is happening on the streets of Ephesus. Now, with Abbey's Monstera plant, it's growing healthy, it's doing well, it's got the nutrients, and it's got generally better conditions. It's doing, I won't get up the photo, but you know, it's there, it's growing. But that plant may feel healthy. We may look at it and think it's healthy, but actually it's restricted. It will never grow bigger than the pot it's in allows it to grow. And I think these disciples in Ephesus were a bit like that. They had lots of knowledge. They had some community. They were together with other people. They had even repented. A lot seems to have been going well. But it's only when they became aware of what they didn't have and what that meant that true growth began to happen. When they understood what it meant to encounter the Holy Spirit, something changed. They experienced its power, and that has an impact on those who witness it and what happens around them. And in Ephesus, this was a really big impact. And we see a cautionary tale of people who see that power but don't understand it and want it anyway. Verses 13 and 16 say, Some Jews who went around driving out the evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. Here we have a group of individuals attempting to use the name of Jesus without faith. I love that they even say, in the name of Jesus, whom that other guy Paul preaches, could you do this for me? 
basically. That's it, right? In the name of Jesus, who I don't really know, but someone else has told me is great, demons be gone. Do we do that? Maybe. Maybe there's a little challenge there. Sometimes we, we claim Christianity, we claim relationship, but we're a little bit reliant on what we hear and those around us to have it for us. Now, this is an egregious example, right? They're relying on superficial rituals and mocked-up versions of Paul's ministry that they had witnessed and trying to have the same effect. It's a complete 180 from the sincere believers that Paul had encountered and who had been able to experience the Holy Spirit. These guys just wanted the gifts. They wanted the reward without the gift giver. It was never going to work. And that's because, actually, true power isn't something that is ours. It belongs wholly to God, and we can only claim it when we're submitted to him. Those disciples who Paul encountered were able to experience the work of the Spirit because they first sought to follow God. They first sought to know their Father. And I think that's a challenge for us today. Do we want to see miracles? Do we want to see people come into the kingdom of God simply because those are amazing things? Or do we want to follow the one who brings it about? Do we want to submit ourselves to him even when our will isn't his? We can't have one without the other. Our faith has to be built on something authentic. Um, and I was reminded the other day of um, when I went to a... Uh, I was preaching at a youth group the week after they'd been to Soul Survivor. Uh, yeah, so some of you have done that, right? Um, and the look of disappointment, on, it's very similar to the look I'm getting now, but the look of disappointment on their faces, those kids, as they didn't have 10,000 people around them, um, an incredible from-the-front speaker who could command, you know, awesome power of oratory and speech, was gutting. It was single-handedly one of them. I vividly remember this group of 30 youth looking at me like I was something on their shoe. Um, and that's okay. But actually, there was a dawning, I think, for some of them that what they had experienced at the very best of times in the big scale actually isn't what faith is all about every week. It's great to be at Soul Survivor. It's great to see people being saved. It is incredible to see healings. But actually, a lot of the hard work of faith is day to day. It's hard. It involves things maybe you don't want to do, <laughs> maybe you don't want to experience. Hopefully better speakers than the very young version of me uh, that was talking to them back then. And it involves a bit of plodding sometimes, continually coming back to the source, continually coming back to teaching, continually coming back to worship and prayer and the word, and actually believing in that. And actually, then we see the miracles. Then we see the spirit amongst us. Then we see the work of the Father. Those things are always going to be linked. Hearing the word, being taught, and then experiencing the power of that word in our lives. And we're going to land with a final point. We've talked a little bit about teaching. We've talked a little bit about power. And I want to land on repentance because it's a phrase that comes up a lot in this phrase, in this passage. And actually, I want to think about how repentance on a grand scale can change a city. So let's hold on to the idea that what, Ephesus, that what he, God does in Ephesus, he can do here in Manchester. At this point, the people of Ephesus have witnessed some incredible scenes. Maybe they're on their version of Market Street in the city centre. They're going about their lives. They're in the midst of their everyday. And they've experienced something of the extraordinary. Um, 
you know, being a bit, this was a Greek city in Turkey, so let's imagine they're going to a fancy Greek temple, they're going to the market, um, they're having some fun, they're doing their shopping, they're experiencing culture. Um, and actually, they've just witnessed a group of men transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. They've witnessed a group of men who maybe they knew as earnest people, maybe they knew as learners of people who studied being miraculously, completely transformed around them. These people have gone from knowing the word to speaking languages they never had before, to having heavenly tongues, to being able to commune with God. That must have been an incredible thing to witness. That must have been a remarkable thing to have been around. That would have attracted the attention. And it says in this text, we haven't read it, that Paul stayed for two years, and in the time he was there, All of the Greeks and the Jews, every person in that city, every person in that province heard the word of the Lord. Not all of them responded to it, but every single one of them had an opportunity to hear it. And many of them, many of them became Christians. But those people in Ephesus had also seen people, had also seen power without faith and the terrible consequences of that. And they had a choice to make. So verses 18 and then 20 say... When this became known to the Greeks and Jews living in Ephesus, they were seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who had believed now came and openly professed to what they had done. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This event that had been happening, this series of remarkable events, the sight of God's power on full display had triggered something much wider in a group of people, in a city, in a nation. There was a stirring of the Holy Spirit. Many, many repented and turned away from their former behaviour, their lifestyle. Many heard the truth of the gospel, really heard it, and convicted by the Spirit, they made conscious decisions to give up their old way and embrace a new life in Christ. But it didn't end with a personal decision. It's not just inward, but it's outward. They express this decision, they express the hearing of the gospel and being convicted by it through action. And in Ephesus, they end up burning occult books, they burn the symbols of their former lives, they make a physical act of their repentance. There's an outward manifestation of what had been done in their heart, the transformation they had seen in their lives. I think there's a real boldness in saying, actually, what held me before doesn't hold me, and a physical act that went along with that. And I was at our Fallowfield site for seven years, um, and we, and I, Abby and I helped lead that for a while. And I remember the story of a student who became a Christian and joined CCM. And before they had been a Christian, they had been experimenting with the occult. Um, and I think it had started as a bit of a, like a joke, really, and something that wasn't too big. Let's try a Ouija board, and nothing happened. But actually, it really led to a place where they had tarot cards and crystals, and they believed they were speaking to non-earthly spirits. And they engaged with that behavior with one of their housemates, and it had become a routine and part of their life. And at some point, God had done in a 180, the Holy Spirit had come in and transformed them, and they weren't engaging with that. And I remember speaking to them at church, and they were saying that they were struggling to sleep. And when they had woken up in the night, their eyes had been drawn to the shelves where they kept some of their old tarot cards and crystals and all of that kind of stuff. They just hadn't got rid of them. And it felt very clear to me that actually you need to get rid of them, right? Like 
if they don't have power over you, if they're not something you subscribe to, you need to make the final break. And so they ended up chopping up the cards so no one else could use them. They got rid of the other stuff. And for them, that act, it changed something. It was freeing. It was declaring in a very kind of private but also public way, this isn't mine anymore. These things that I subscribe to are not who I am. Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is, the work of the Spirit has transformed me. Turning away from sin provokes a response in yourself, and it can provoke a response in others. Because actually some people want that, and other people want that, but can't get it. There are people who benefit from sinful structures in our lives, the people who benefit from the idols, the people who benefit from exploiting the poor, from the gain of money and capitalism. Not that I'm against that, I work for a bank. Uh, but let's, you know. Um, actually, there are people who, who live in those places and are happy living in those places. And some people can't face the depths of their own sin when it's revealed to them through the work of other people. Have I got a picture up? Um, no, I haven't. Um, so, where am I going with this? Sorry, I've got this uh, sidetrack. Okay, so what we're saying is this incredible thing's happening. People are turning from sin. That is illuminating the depths of the rest of the world's sin, right? It's very easy to live in darkness if everyone else is living in darkness. Something happens when light starts to break in. You become aware of what is happening. And for some, that is a great thing. Yes, I want that. I want that light. I want to step into that. I want to throw away these idols and turn to Jesus. For others, I have to destroy the light. I have to break this and stop other people going in a direction that I feel is attacking some of who I am. And that's the reality of the opposition that Paul faced and the believers in Ephesus faced. Near the end of our passage today, in verses 24 and 29, it says that a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in the related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we've received good income from this business. And you can see and hear how, the fellow, how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Isn't that incredible? That two years in Ephesus, the whole province of Asia was turning away from these false gods. Two years of hearing the word, of being convicted by the Spirit, there was massive societal change. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. They were right. Not many people still worship the goddess Artemis. Um, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people say, seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia. This group of people, seized and fueled by fear, and their own self-interest, they made a lot of money off selling these artefacts, they couldn't deal with the word and the work of the Holy Spirit. So they sought to destroy it. They sought to turn people away from it and stop the work that Paul and his followers, Paul and his, uh, not his followers, Jesus' followers were doing. And yet the story of Acts, which we've looked at throughout the series, is that the people of God, when faced with opposition, when faced with adversity, should be steadfast in clinging to the truth of the gospel. 
actually we see time and time in the book of Acts that threats and intimidation are a response of those whose earthly power has faded, is on the decline, is crumbling. They're fighting an earthly losing battle and the believers always have something greater to cling on to because they know the truth of the teaching they've heard, they've experienced the true power of the Holy Spirit and they've begun to see what society looks like when people repent. They've begun, they've experienced repentance for themselves and actually the cost to themselves is nothing compared to the greatness and the glory they've received from experiencing Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I want to kind of land with that, that as believers, we won't see the incredible things that we see in Ephesus unless we're willing to hear the truth from our teaching, we're willing to be challenged, we're willing to repent, and actually we're willing to take action to really turn away from the things that have held us. And those, that's hard, right? If you have experienced the spiritual and you've got those tarot cards, actually it's hard to chop them up because they held something over you. If you have an addiction to pornography, it's hard to stop that. If you cling to money and fortune, it's hard to actually give that away. These are not easy things to do. But the action that you take to say, actually, that is behind me, and God, who is greater, has saved me, and is working in me, brings about change. And actually, I think, brings about change beyond us. As those disciples who were changed change the city around them, actually, when we're changed, we change the city around us. And I believe that, and I believe that for Manchester. I want to see Manchester transformed. I want to see people lifted out of poverty. I want to see the sick healed, and I want people in this city to declare the name of Jesus. And actually, I'd like every one of us to have a story of that happening, time and time again. Not five, ten years ago when we saw someone hear the word and become a Christian, but actually last week, this week, something is happening, someone I'm praying for, something that's being declared. Thanks for listening. To explore this sermon or learn more about our church, please navigate to the links provided in this podcast description. From there, you can connect with us on social media and you're welcome to check out the music links featured in this episode from our very own musicians. You can also discover current events and information about where we meet on Sundays and various groups or community projects that you can join in with. If you're interested in knowing more about us or wish to join us for one of our meetings, please reach out. Simply drop us an email at hello at ccm.org.uk. We look forward to connecting with you. Follow.